Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. everyone, welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're back, and we are here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. Um, I am Keeper Jen, had to remember what show I was on, sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's going to be like that. It's been a really long week. We're in the weekend and into- Gen Con, you know, brain cells. Mm-hmm. Um, with us, we have the wonderful Keeper Mark. Hey, everyone. I, I brought a special guest. <laughs> <laughs> and Keeper Bob. Hey, everyone. I'm still reeling from rules as written earlier today, but glad to be here. I missed it. Did you get rules handed to you or no it was just we spent quite a bit of time discussing mutant crawl classics and since the sanctum Socorum library has been relocated i have not yet found my mc Uh, versus well we're we're getting there um tonight however we had a slow burning piece of modern horror if you want to call what was it 1967 77 Oh, was it? Mm -hmm. As modern as we are, then. Uh, (laughs) But the author is no stranger to Sanctum Secorum. He's an acknowledged grandmaster of fantasy. And we're talking, of course, of Fritz Leiber. We are going to be diving into the semi-autobiographical tale, Our Lady of Darkness. Take it away, Bob. Middle-aged San Francisco horror writer Franz Weston is rediscovering ordinary life following a long alcoholic binge. Then one day, peering at his apartment window from atop a nearby hill, he sees a pale brown thing lean out his window and wave. The encounter sends Weston on a quest through ancient books and modern streets for the dark forces and paramental entities that thrive amidst the towering skyscrapers of modern urban life. And meanwhile, the entities are also looking for him. Mm. I like this. Entities, plural, because it it seemed like there were so many false starts. I will say, this one kept me guessing. Yeah, now it's, it's worth noting this was originally published in a shorter form called The Pale Brown Thing. And it, it was the January-February issues of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in, in 77. And after this was published, he later said that the two texts should be regarded as the same story told at different times. 
Yeah, and I saw that there was actually a released version of that, the Pale Brown Thing story with some annotations comparing it to Our Lady of Sorrows that you can pick up. And very interesting yeah. to read that after reading Our Lady of Darkness. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> a lot of, I mean, lot of ladies. <laughs> the minute these books were put together on the bed and made to resemble a, a human referring to like the Lovecraft shoulder and all of that. I'm like, dude, you are playing with the wrong magic. <laughs> well, and this gets so depressing because so like Franz Weston Liber was, was recovering from uh, having descended into alcoholism, but it's because his wife had passed away uh, just a few years prior. So You've you've got that going on, and so the character having these books shaped like a woman next to him on the bed, kind of comforting, takes when you know how autobiographical it is. I mean, you know, yeah, I was surprised by that, like how much of this was his lived-in city and his lived-in life. You know that that was surprising to me that he got so close to himself with what a emotional story can you know can be, especially the origins of it. Well, yeah, I mean, he was living he was living in the apartment that he wrote about. Right. The only, uh, from what I, from my research, the only liberty he took with the building that he was living in is that he added a seventh floor to a six-story building. <laughs> now, if that's where he was living, I wonder what was actually found in the real janitor closet over there, as opposed to that that book, right? Well, you know, if if there was, yeah. right? But um, a fan visited him, visited him in 1976 and said he was shocked to find him occupying one small room of a seedy San Francisco residence hotel. It's squalor re relieved mainly by walls of books. Mm -hmm. And, and there's differing stories about, you know, how poorly Liber was doing. I mean, he was using a manual typewriter that he would set on the sink in his, in his room to type. But, uh, and matter of fact, Harlan Ellison went on a, a very lengthy rant about that. Um, but also it's said that that's because Liber was taking his money and using it to, to go out and, you know, enjoy the town and dine. So it's, it's really hard to say, but it, shortly after is when Liber started getting money from TSR and that kind of carried him through the rest of his life. Now, Mark, I gotta say, when we opened the, when we opened on the city of San Francisco and talking about the hills and the, the Oakland and the Alameda areas, I could not help but think of this is Vance's land. Yeah. Like, literally, this is where Vance lived. And so every single street that was mentioned with such detail, like it, it's so transformative, I think, from from the the writing of Liber that we knew before. I mean, this is the writing's on another level at this point. It's, it's interesting because the language is is very rich, you know, and, and obviously there's there's a lot of similarities between the you know kind of the the vocabulary that's used in this and some of the Vancian vocabulary. The the thing that threw me off so much was all the references, right? Because he is throwing out literary references, musical references, cultural references. And then <laughs> in encased in all that is this urban landscape that he is basically taking a street by street guidebook to, right? You know, in, in many ways, he's not he's not characterizing each street, but it's very much like 
you know, a Lankmar city map where he's saying, I'm going up this street up, you know, my way to the hill. I take the, this transportation. And, and so it's, it's very much like he is, is very detailed about that. Um, it's, it's very, it feels very urban, you know, in this setting, you know, and, and I think that's also something that, you know, obviously kind of plays with the, uh, his other works, his fantasy novels. But that was just, I think he was very relatively new to San Francisco is what I understood. Like he'd been there maybe a a few years, maybe less than that. And he absorbed a lot of this because he'd come from, you know, a different part of the country. And, and, you know, I think that was, that was something he really dug into and took, um, took some ownership or care to, to present. Well, and it's interesting that at least until COVID, there was actually a tour you could take in San Francisco that would take you to the various locations mentioned in this book. Um, That's our next team retreat, right? I'm I'm trying to remember (laughs) because I I saw photos of some of the little locations and like the, like the actual bookstore and and things of that nature. And I, and I found it absolutely fascinating and and just the way he ties everything. I mean, Jen, you, you're talking about you know, Jack Vance, right? There is the uh, the line, "What was that epitaph Dorothy Sayers had seen on an old tombstone and thought the acme of all grew?" I was like, <laughs> "Okay, I only have one frame of reference for the word grew, and uh, generally involves ending up you know with a headstone, not <laughs> you know." Um, but yeah, this is this is considered one of Liber's best novels. It is considered his most Lovecraftian novel, right? I mean, the hilltop oh, yeah. of uh, Corona Heights is really meant to evoke Lovecraft's Sentinel Hill from the Dunwich Horror. And- yes, uh, yesterday he had lived through a story that might fittingly be called The Lurker at the Summit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I was uh, I was speaking to. Uh, a Lovecraft expert out in Massachusetts, uh, Franklin mm. Hummel, and he mentioned that there is a a fairly large number of people that believe that this story may have been the inspiration for the occult architecture of Evo Shandor in Ghostbusters. Oh. So, so this story is just kind of rippled through so many things, and you know, Warren Ellis is has written stories that kind of tie into, uh, what is it called? The, uh, man, it's such a tough word to, uh, mega, oh, mega, megapolis of Nancy. Um, just, yeah. Megapolis, there's, yeah, he's got a, he's got a few words that he uses. Megapolis, Saint. Mega Palacio Mancy. <laughs> Palacio Mancy. Maybe Mega Palacio Mancy. Well, see, I think of Megapolis. And so maybe. Yeah, uh, Mega, Mega Palopolis. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a mouthful, is what it is. Um, and you all laughed at me for monochromaticity. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's one of those yeah, things. There's, there's definitely that Lovecraft influence. I, I, if, if I recall correctly, and I. I could be wrong, but I believe that Liber was originally from the Chicago area. And if so, that sort of explains a bit of a throwaway line in the story where he, he mentions that, that someone, I forget the, I forget the phrasing, but uh, someone had, had, had dabbled with the Baha'i faith. And there's a, a massive Baha'i temple in Chicago. There's a very large Persian community because it's it's a religion that is that is from Iran and is not 
accepted there very well. And so, you know, seeing, seeing things like that and you know, knowing that he really was living it on, on Geary Street, there was just, there's so many things. You know, Weston's an amateur astronomer. Well, so is Liber. It, it's this weird autobiographical tale where you're not really sure what's, what is coming from truth and what isn't. And there's even, that even like, references like Stephen of, King too, yeah. <laughs> because he's calling out his own work. Yeah, he does. He, he like references like a story. What is it? A bit of the dark world is mm-hmm. by Liber. You know, it's like one of the other references he just throws out there. So it's uh, it's really interesting how he took that approach. But it turned out, like you said, Bob, this is well, I I think it's a, a great novel. You know, I think it's really a great story, and really enjoyed it, and genuinely creepy at different turns you know surprisingly so I think yeah and this was a story that sort of surprised you maybe in how it turned out or how it progressed but i just found myself like especially the two instances when the brown thing appears in the window even though i know it's coming you know because yeah it's so <laughs> foreshadowed it's just that when you get to that point it's like you're drawn into that horror element which is unusual you know for for reading a library story for me I I'm totally with you that especially the second time when it's when it's zooming yeah. through the binoculars you know, yes. towards him I that that was great and <laughs> while while most of the story is kind of a slow burn back and forth it's it's got its peaks and valleys in in pacing when I got to the end I was just I was electrified during during that entire last portion um, it is yeah, it, it, it does take that weird sort of literary turn when it's it's like here is the the freeze frame, you know, snapshot of everybody's like what what happened to them. Yes, <laughs> I found the very a very odd tonal difference between that and the rest of the story. Um, because it wasn't an epilogue; it was an epilogue without being called such. Right, right. Um, yeah, and out, of, and out of that first person voice that Franz was, you know, having the whole the whole time. So. Well, the first time he sees that that thing through his own window, when he goes out to Corona Heights and looks back, he sees the creature leaning through his own window. So he's wondering, you know, does, is this something dark? It has to be. And he was afraid to go back home. And he progressively finds some of the copies of his uh, fantasy and sci-fi and horror pulps missing. Mm-hmm. And that explains the little bits of the brown paper. And so that actually uh, really makes me think of the earlier title that you mentioned, Bob. Yeah, the pale print. Well, and just just the, the way all of that comes together and the, the revelation at the end that you know, our, our, our lady of darkness, the, the pale brown thing is actually made up of shredded books and papyrus and ancient texts and knows everything that's, that's been written on all of these things. That was, that was such a, a powerful turn as it's, as, as it's seeking to destroy him. I, I, just... I will never again uster, underestimate books that have gone missing. <laughs> no, not at all. It's, uh... <laughs> And those those uh, forlorn books that are left on your bed, maybe just take a little bit more caution to either 
um, clean them up or do, or tuck them in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the whole concept of a scholar's <laughs> wife of of gradually building a human body of books and <laughs> magazines on your bed next to you is something that I was not familiar with. And uh, I, yeah, mean, I joke that my to-read pile will someday fall and kill me, but I that think it's, was, that was a, his or like a Dutch wife or, you know, that phrase, which was, you know, something that looking that up was something, you know, in terms of what it used to be a way for people to cool down in warm um, climates, you know, having a wicker or bamboo basically pillow that you could hold on to, to get or circulation. And that was, yeah. you know, that was kind of the, the analog that he was, the Franz, the author was, was envisioning, but of course it turns out to this horror, you know, in the end. And of course, our our villain, uh, DeCastries, scribbled this curse in a book that was suspected and later proven to be written by Clark Ashton Smith, a, a journal or diary. Yeah, oh my God. They yeah. stuck the pages together so they wouldn't easily be found. And that was the curse. But Around the same time, Ambrose Pierce went missing. Jack London, George Sterling were were dead. So I'm wondering, did he also curse them? Well, and that's implied in the story, right? That he was responsible for their deaths. And the fact that the villain of our story is actually dead, right? He's dead. He's been cremated. His ashes have been buried. Long before the story even starts, our villain is, is most certainly dead, but he still casts he an incredibly long shadow. There, the historian is kind of an, an accomplice because he's the one that had gone out and spray painted all the sigils around, well, fairly basic symbols, really, um, around the burial site, which happened to be Corona Heights. <laughs> and uh, I love this passage that uh, Franz perversely wondered what this graffiti would have done to the eerie rock crowned hills in Lovecraft settings, like Whisper in Darkness, mm. Horror, yeah. you know, and yeah, so many, so many literary call-outs that at one point it almost starts to feel lazy, like that's all they're doing. But at the same time, man, that takes a lot of research, too. Well, it's it's sort of like, you know, it, well, and he calls out what, Dashiell Hammett, Arthur Machen, I mean, so many people, mm-hmm. but in a, in a way... It's it's Liber in the seventies, looking back at like the Lovecraft circle and and some of these other folks that that really kind of drove things and were inspirational, and and tying it in and you know, tying tying like Lovecraft's you know description of Red Hook really is is another example of these the concept of a haunted city. And this this idea of San Francisco is is haunted and yet also paranormally charged, and so you can affect the future by affecting the city. Uh, yeah. Well, and broader than that, that all cities have this, you know, capacity, you know, for paramentalism because of the structures. San Francisco just has to be at this sort of like apex of culture and you know, him coming to this kind of literary circle and, and using that to try to, you know, build a base of, you know, a cult, you know, to take this on. But also it's like evidenced by these like really kind of iconic things that are on the San Francisco skyline, like the, the tower, right? You know, that the keeps being referenced over and over again. 
um, you know, or the, oh, the satellite, the, yeah, yeah, or the Transamerica building, which obviously is like a very famous, you know, yeah. at this time and still is. And so these, this kind of, you know, libraries coming to the San Francisco that is, has this very much a literary history, but it is also being confronted with the modernism, right? And I, I think that this story is a great sort of, you know, fabulistic way of, of exploring that. And, and, you know, this concept of this person who discovered the science of pair, you know, of, of, of that word. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, and, and, and he's, he's got this sort of like, you know, charm or charisma that almost works, right? But he's also confronted with these very much aloof or intellectual, you know, authors who are willing to deign sort of a a passing fad, but, you know, they quickly tire of him and when it's not fun anymore or there's not enough, you know, drinking or revelry. Right. Well, it really does seem to be full of just little snippets of scenes. Yeah. Well, and in the chat, uh, hello, yes, toast was, was commenting that it's it, that it's like having a lot of people in one place creates a large well of psychic energy. But it it really goes beyond that because it's as the city grows, it is forming its own sacred geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because he he starts getting into things like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and, and Crowley. And and so you've got all these other things, and then these buildings and key points that finalize. I mean, let's face it, you know, our our villain wrote a curse, but the curse could not be completed until after his intended victim was was dead, and that was because of the fact that the buildings had not been placed yet to complete the geometry for it. Yeah, when I read that, that was like, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was so so cool. there, there's just there's so much to recommend this story for. Uh, there's so many just brilliant concepts. There's moments of just horrid creepiness. There's weird dreamlike moments. There's this window into Liber himself, and you know his his recent battle with alcoholism, and and just sort of the the social circles he was in. I mean, you know, pot is a plaything. And you know, and well, I, I don't, I don't want to smoke pot. Oh well, I've got cocaine. <laughs> those are very, very different things. But it was yeah, the, it it was the casualness, and you wonder how much of that is is of the fiction, and how much of it is of Liber. Yeah. just, just brilliant. I'm, I'm really gonna have to hunt down some biographies of of Liber after this and really dig in. Yeah, and I think it's a shame that the mention of all of the mental ward patients was kind of a, a throwaway at the in the story. I really would have liked oh, to did they uh did some of what they had experienced become more real now and more accepted by by the characters in this little inner circle? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot to unpack. It's actually, uh, what was it? I think it's safe to say we all enjoyed the book, though. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice to sit and read a book that, uh, yeah, I've wanted to read more from Liber for a long time. It was was really nice to read something other than the the fantasy stories, stories, you know, just because I had no idea, you know, that he was... um, you know that he'd written a horror novel first first of all or the one that was very autobiographical you know there is like so you can see glimpses of like a Parker and Gray Mouser story there's like one time when he's describing 
the mechanism at the top of the elevator shaft and he's calling it this dwarf in this green armor like a spider you know kind of creature and that that was very much like oh that could be lifted directly you know of a description of of Langmar or these stories um but other than that it's very much like a different you know different style in many ways and it's kind of fun to see well and i was I wonder if Margaret Sinclair was in the same circle because there were so many points in the first couple of chapters that really read the same way. Hmm. Was, she was up in the same area. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, they obviously took little tips from each other. Uh, like I said, this writing is far advanced from the Fawford and Gray Mouser stories, especially the ones from the twenties. Well, and we thirties that came out. We read, uh, we read a short story collection by Liber not too long ago. Horrible imaginings. And there was there was a story in there that that this sort of reminded me of, where there's something unseen following the man through the city, and mm. and you don't really get a clear ending on that. But this sort of this had shades of that story. And it was yes. just it was it was all greatly enjoyable. But so, the, I, I think that's a pretty. Uh... <laughs> a, a pretty good synopsis. So it, it was enjoyable, and I'm curious to read it again now, knowing what I know. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. They had the time. Yeah, I, I think I'm really curious to read the original short story and, and oh, look at it in the life, like, like Liber, you know, explaining it as told at different times. You know, because I, you know, that's that seems like it's intent. Well, you know, whether he did it intentionally or not, you know, and, and now he's got a perspective that both things are connected and usually that doesn't happen with this with like a, a serialized novel or stories that stories right like a novel it's it's usually like ignore those you know this is what i you know, yeah. <laughs> the time space to do so and said this yeah, is the time he told really... told it down at the bar and this is the time that he told it at the party yeah, yeah. right yeah. Okay. And, yeah really um now there was a quote that i wanted to throw out there uh that de quincey had intended to write a whole book about our Lady of Darkness and call it the Kingdom of Darkness, but apparently never had. Hmm. Um, what happened to De Quincey? What happened to his Lady of Darkness? Well, that's I, a that's a good question, right? I'm, I'm I am so distrustful of random stacks of books now, man. <laughs> oh boy, you're you're in for a, a very. I'm in the wrong house for that. You're in the wrong house. Yeah, you really are. <laughs> At least now it's 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 boxes of uh, it's stacked boxes of random books. No, it's random. Uh, it's stacks yeah. of random boxes of books because the books within the boxes aren't random. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. This this is hurting my head. Can we move on to things to stacked? Sure. <laughs> sure. What you got, Bob? Well, so he just he describes a real drug. Um, Peraldehyde uh, when he's when oh, he's yes. talking about the mental patients at the beginning, yeah, and uh, and and the invisible nurse who ended up killing the entire ward. Oh, that was Saul's story, yeah, yeah. It's it, and it's it's a real medication. It has a very strong smell, and he described it as like this super aromatic, super alcohol, super banana oil gasoline <laughs> that's served in a shot glass because it'll melt plastic. And its molecules travel through the air ahead of it faster than light. And I was like, oh, oh, this is definitely, 
there's definitely a potion in here, right? I mean, you, it needs to be in a glass because if you put it in, in like a, a drinking horn, it'll melt through the horn. <laughs> and the idea of a scent traveling faster than light. Mm. I like there's, there's got to be a, there's, there's a potion there somewhere, right? <clears throat> I mean, it's a real drug. There, there's a potion in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was the uh, description of screaming lightning, where he once heard lightning over Chicago. It wasn't thunder, but this high-pitched moaning scream. And I thought that would make a great mercurial effect. That's right? Screaming idea, lightning. Um, there's there's these moments where he's running through the city and he he keeps feeling that he's being pursued. And sometimes it's like, well, maybe it's the dogs from the hill. But then in his mind, the dogs were becoming spiders. And he talks to someone else who had had a dream of dog-sized, creamy furs, you know, spiders hunting them. And the way they, they kept to the shadows as they were following them, I think, I think the spiders are, they beg to be written up. Um, you make references to the, the breed of dog called a, what is it, a bourgeois? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a, it, it is kind of this sort of like has hanging fur that sort of drapes down and, and, and like, you know, kind of sweeps the ground a little. It's, it's like a tall dog. But that, I, with that description, you're saying it could be, I can see that spider image coming in the dark. Right. It, it was just so, so creepy. Um, then when, uh, when our villain, they, they talk about he had created his own sort of response to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the Hermetic Order of the Onyx Dusk. Which also made me think of the the Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight out of out of Call mm-hmm. of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. It made me it made me think, you know, that in DCC we have these these orders of knighthood and things of that nature, and in in Dying Earth there's organizations for magicians. Well, maybe you know wizardry collegiums in straight <laughs> DCC should be a thing, right? The, yeah. The order, you know, take out Hermetic and just leave it as the Order of the Onyx Dusk. You know, little things like that. Um, I mean, he mentions the Crystal Skull, although he mentions <laughs> it as having been debunked by yeah. a friend of his. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I, I think we can all talk about the the Queen of Night. So I'll leave I'll leave that to you two. Um, but he also talks about like fringe matters of the occult. And there was a few things on there that I thought would be kind of cool to write up, you know, writing up rules for dowsing or writing up rules for reading auras, um, solid stuff. There's a, there's a line in the book, ghosts are we, but with skeletons of steel. Mm. And that is evocative enough, I think, to, to stat something up. And then, obviously, you know, why shouldn't a modern city have its special ghosts like castles and graveyards and big old manor houses, right? I mean, Megapolis Omancy needs to be a thing. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. There was there was so much in this I wanted to to, to write up and start playing with. I, I think all modern cities should have ghosts. They're a civilizing influence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> what about you, Mark? I, you know, the big obvious one for me was new curses, you know, especially the example of the cipher, uh, curse that he wrote in Smith's journal, you know, given this kind of like, it requires these other elements to be 
present that aren't there yet. It has this sort of like fake kind of quality because this journal somehow ends up in Franz's um, hands and he lives in the same apartment, you know, where, you know, so all these things had to like sort of like come together. So there's a sense of the, the out, even outside the curse itself, that it has a, the power is being pulled and tugged in various directions. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought, you know, just ideas for curses would be great, um, especially if you can make them a little bit more like the cipher one. Um, the witchcraft. You love your ciphers. <laughs> the witchcraft in the walls is this great idea and, and very evocative because it's this actual literal book in the wall and, you know, this thing that is having this influence around. It kind of reminded me of reading about, I think in Roman times, there would be a very common practice of writing a curse on a lead tablet. And then having somebody throw it on the roof of the intended curse victim, right? So this is something that, you know, would people would pay for this service. And, and that idea that you could pay for somebody to, like, write a book and put it in the wall that has, you know, their victim or intended victim um, was kind of a, an interesting concept. Um, yeah, Bob, the, the brown thing, you know, I, I, I went immediately went to, like, a spell, you know, some sort of DCC spell that has various results, you know, based on you know, the, the required materials and whatever materials you choose to use, whether you use paper or parchment, pull, you know, pulp that up or use some other sort of wizardly, um, you know, uh, paraphernalia. You know, I think I think that's kind of a neat idea of just creating this, you know, this object out of whatever book or or thing, you know, experimental materials you have. Um, I like that. And, and a spell would be a good something to start out. The binoculars that can see in the past which is very evocative, you know, another one of these sort of things where he's looking and he's sort of like thinking back to the story um, by, I think, Henry James, it was a view from a hill, and, you know, saying that binocular had been magic essentially to view things in the past because it had this sort of ground up bones that had been liquefied, and when the binoculars broke, the liquid oozed out and they lost, you know, that they could see the, you know, losing its power, that sort of thing. I love that image of like filling an object with you know, this kind of narcoleptic or like this kind of like necropsy of you know, elements to make it, you know, an occult object. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> because of the way the story ends, you know, I was thinking what some type of cleric that can turn unholy using science. Dark heresy. Well, not just science, right? But I mean, she called on, like three composers, creators. That's right. The as creation is, yeah, I guess. And it, <sighs> it, was, <laughs> it was like something she inherited from her father, which you know makes me want to like be that kind of dad now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could totally see that. Um, but yeah, this, those are those things that just came to mind. It's it is a, it's weird to set up something from the a more traditional horror story rather than you know a usual fantasy story. But it was kind of a fun uh, exercise. What about you, Jen? Uh, well, Bob, speaking of your skeletons of steel, um, I was thinking building sentient beings, these gargantuan tombs or monstrous vertical coffins would actually be kind of a cool thing. Like the lady um, that claimed the buildings were following her down the street at night. How do you know they weren't? Well, well I, I was just <laughs> saying, by for example. Uh, Mark, I'm right there with you with, with the curses, especially using the toffee rhyme. Uh, Went to toffee's house, but he was at mine, and yeah, yeah that's great. Uh, you know, 
there's a lot of importance in DCC placed on the symbols that you find. And usually they're like this weird upside down Z, you know, from <laughs> Mr. Codex. Uh, the simple signs or the simple anti-hex signs. Mm. Uh, who would have thought a single five-pointed star was actually keeping away dark forces? And as it turned out, was pretty easy to get rid of. Uh, but just that simple little thing. Um, I mean, I could totally see adventuring, coming across a small village, and those are the symbols that they use because that's what keeps them safe, they think. Uh, there was, yeah, I think he also referenced something the- like MCC for that, right? Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. I was going to say, he also referenced, I think it was a paragraph where he was talking about the, the sort of like three things that um, bears or the, the, the author they want to go speak to. There was like the silver figurines that was supposed to prevent the paramentals. And then there was the abstract designs, you know, which reminded me of like vampires having to like pick up or like count sand or, or things like that. And then the last was a, you know, that five point star essentially, which like you said, super simple and, and easy and. Well, and it wasn't even that it was easy to get rid of because I mean it was the five point star. The idea being, if something tried to if tried to enter, it would get snagged on the point of the star. <laughs> yeah. But but the problem was it was already inside when they put up all the stars. They just didn't know it. It's not that it was easy to get rid of. It's just that you know he trapped it in there with him. It's not that that you know, I'm trapped in here with you. It's you're trapped in here with me. It's literally what happened. Yeah, and our uh, our Peruvian uh, groundskeeper Fernando is absolutely a shaman dealing oh, with things mm-hmm. like this. He was the one who kept saying, you know, there's definitely the witchcraft in the walls. Yeah. Um, I am not going to stat the girls in blue dresses because <laughs> they're creepy red herrings on their own. And <laughs> I would totally insert them into whatever I'm running just to throw people off their game. Um, could we maybe have something, Mark, like you mentioned, hereditary powers for PCs? Like, Decastries was descended from the de- decipherer of the Rosetta Stone. So, yeah, he that's had a, a cool idea. All of these languages. That's um, a, that you I could, mean, yeah, you could almost like build like a build that into the funnel experience, right? You could have a, you know, I mean, if you wanted to like, have it sort of like be part of this character easy symbol character creation but yeah i like that well and that sort of ties in into well but the but the hereditary powers kind of ties into the fact there's a lot of uh, union uh psychology throughout this entire story and you know and symbolism things of that nature and so when you start getting into ancestral memory which is which is a you know a a similar concept that that derives from there and just taking it that step further to hereditary powers, you know, the, the Irish, the seventh son of the seventh son and things of that yeah. nature. I could totally see doing that. Yeah. Um, that could possibly really be cool. started up as a spell to dive into your ancestral memories. Or, or maybe you just as a as character a background. I mean, God, yeah, you could do a lot of that. Like more benisons. That's yeah, that's really cool. Without having to, you know, go into and choose what background you want for your characters, because DCC doesn't work like that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> was, um, 
Bob mentioned the cult, I mean, the uh, Order of the Onyx Dusk. There was a ring that Dicastri's wore that went along with it. And there's a beautiful long description in the story on that. And I, that is absolutely a magic item. It was buried with him too. Yeah. Or sealed in wax next to, or, or glued to the top of his urn. Yeah. So that's uh, definitely a ring of power. Uh, I think that's it for, for my, my fun little list here. Uh, as for audio suggestions, I'll just barrel right in because I was listening to Django Reinhardt, listening to <laughs> the old uh, Belgium, I believe, Belgium or Bulgarian. I, I forget. Uh, just listening to the old jazz mixes, especially during those walks down the streets of San Francisco during this weird time of all of the towers starting to become built. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Take it away, guys. I'll, I'll do the short the short one next. Um, the one thing that kept running through my mind because of all the the of Cal, who's you know the um, his his neighbor downstairs, but she also is the one that saves him in the end. She was a musician doing a you know practice for the concerto. And when I was younger, just it kind of bolted with me out of the blue that I I used to love and adore the Wendy Carlos um, Moog synthesizer, um, uh, you know, com- compositions of the the Bach. Um, uh, concertos and there was like switched on Bach and switched on Bach 2 and the well-tempered synthesizer and it just like I hadn't listened to those in years you know and it was like one of the things that I, I you know spent a lot of time listening to just because it was a, just a fun thing I loved when I was a uh, younger kid um, but they you know that just it kind of fits in that classical music theme that's um, mm-hmm. a big part of the story and obviously you know it has an element like you mentioned that the visitation to the psych ward is punctuated by this expression of music which calms all everybody down and you that obviously foreshadows what happens later with you know the the own the concerto being this sort of resonating thing that but triggers his uh franz's you know sort of you know go back to and, and solve this riddle and her knowing that by solving this riddle he was going to be in danger right which is this kind of like lovely thing that wasn't it's sort of like the anti-magic right it's like it's 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 music and and science sort of fitting into um, an antidote to the cult. Um, so Cal well, was named for Calpurnia, who was the character who who continually uh, she she kept warning Caesar. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and and of course, she the harpsichord of all things. <laughs> <laughs> Megapolis Amancy is referred to uh, by its creator, at least, as a science, as opposed mm. to to some kind of pyramid paranormal so there's, there's that um i was gonna say just recommend if you can pick up a copy of wendy carlos you, i tried today to um see if i could download them but they're not available for digital download you have to you know buy the, the cd or the uh, you know go to wendy carlos's site and i think you can uh, purchase directly from there but um yeah that, that was just a fun sort of like um awesome. blast from the past. what about you bob well first of all i should say that the, so because of everything that's been going on, this, the the main Spotify playlist is is still under construction. Although I was able to find 
uh, the first switched on Bach album on Spotify. So that, <laughs> that is on the playlist. I, I really kind of struggled uh, while I was reading this. I was, I was trying to find music to listen to, to help kind of, kind of calm my mind and set the mood. And I tried a lot of kind of my, my go-to spooky stuff and none of it, none of it really fit. And finally I hit upon a, a playlist of all things. It was the playlist for the, uh, the cue of the tower of terror. So it's things like pyramid by Johnny Hodges and, and deep purple by Turner Layton. It's got Vera Lynn, Sidney Bichette, Rex Stewart, Duke Ellington. And because the story is set in 77, but it keeps referring back to, to the twenties and the thirties, it just had this really great ghostly feel and, you know, Fats Waller, Henry Allen, Glenn Miller, uh, Bunny Berrigan. So I, I've been working on assembling those songs as well for, for the playlist because it, for me, it really set the mood of, of the haunted streets in the seventies because it's, it's the ghosts of the past. And uh, yeah, it's just, there, there's nothing like sitting and listening to Delta mood by Rex Stewart or uh, remember by Red Norbo. The stuff was, was great. And uh, that was, I mean, I've, I've got a long list and I'll post my full list when we post the show, but you can just go to YouTube and, and you can just search for Tower of Terror playlist and you'll find it. And it for me, that was that was perfect. That was it. Uh, my favorite part it was probably walking in as you were finishing the book with that song, it, with the playlist going and. <laughs> You were actually bothered. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, no. The, the, the end. The when you get to the end of the story before that little epilogue, it, it's it's creepy and it's kind of intense. Yeah. And it, it has those visceral moments, and it, and the music just heightened the entire experience for me. It was perfect. So, so Mark, tell us about the word. <laughs> Sometimes the story has so many you just can't uh, select one. There, there are. I mean, this is like we talked about. It's a, it's a very sort of rich vocabulary war, you know, book um, that uh, every once in a while I'd go, oh, well, that's a new one. I need to go and look that up later, or, or kind of like take note of it. Um, there's also just a lot, like a lot of like what I'd say great sounding words. You know, there's deliquis, right, which is this, um, you know process of becoming a liquid during decomposition and you know that's that was you know one so he used it somewhere in uh in i think one of the later ones um and one probably one of the literary, literary references you know just saying this is somebody that somebody else used um sibiratically which means voluptuously you know and he's uh describing in that case like the ornamentation of um his author friend bears's room who very leads what clearly like a decadent lifestyle um ragus you know this is kind of another word that i really like grew the word that you know sort of threw baba threw me off too because i was like oh well, you know the, what is the the you know, the definition for that and it's this kind of creeping sense of horror you know and i and i think that um reference was all about that being sort of the epitome of, oh, well, that, that, of the creeping sense of horror that um, still fits fans just saying um <laughs> He had a lot of like just on his science. You know, the one word that really stood out to me was the 
uh, mega necropolis, you know, this in the just kind of this evocative of this like huge, un, you know, city of the of undead. Um, and then Jen, you pointed out a couple that I'd missed, you know, which, um, uh, which I loved after, our, um, you know, going back because he, he, it's, he, he, I think you could probably find a word every few pages that would just, you know, call out to it. My favorite, I think, that I would nominate is Gimcrack, which is um, something that's flimsy or poorly made, but deceptively attractive. And I love like that. IKEA furniture. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that Gimcrack. IKEA furniture, just like that. Harsh. Uh, yeah, but it's it's a definitely a fun novel for that. Yeah. There was one that actually made me stop and look it up before I could continue. And uh, I mean, that that's a Harley Stroh trick, right? <laughs> one word in, in all of his modules, he tries to give one that you're going to have to stop and look up. And this one was coin, but it's C-O-I-G-N. And it's a projecting corner or angle of a wall or building. Mm-hmm. Apparently used in Shakespearean plays, right? This is what I, when you put that there, I was like, oh, that's a really cool word mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> too. How about we go on to existing DCC inspirations and rescans? What did this I make was, you think of, Jen? I was going to have Bob start this one. Oh, cool. Okay. It's, oh, okay. We have a couple that overlap. So. <laughs> well, first of all, I forging the ghost ring sprang to mind because as you're bouncing in and out of the city and there's all sorts of supernatural elements involved or I guess making of the ghost ring. That's it, making of the ghost ring. Um, I, I think that that would be, most of the stuff that I was thinking of was all tied into uh, man, and I had it earlier, Megapolisomancy. There we go. <laughs> yes. um, so, you know, stuff, things with, things with big cities, right? So, ghost, ghost ring is, is Punjar, um, Anything from like Metal Gods of Urhadad, the Zine, right? You could, you, Urhadad, which is this this massive twisting city, certainly would have its own sacred geometry and symbolisms built in. Uh, Lankmar, I will I will leave for Jen because I know she's chomping the bit to talk about Lankmar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she is still she is still selling those box sets. In the first first editions are sold out, but she will still sell you one if she finds one. But I also thought that the whole concept of Megapolis Amancy, ah, got it, would be great for a great addition for Weird Frontiers, in that you're certainly not out in the in the frontier towns, but if you're heading back to like Chicago or New York, if you're heading back east into these big cities and the cities are watching you and the the story discussed the the significance of diagonal streets, because that's how the devil looks into cities is through the diagonal streets. So those sorts of stories I thought would be great to overlay with, with bits and pieces for those adventures would be great to to overlay with bits and pieces from this story because they just scream for, for the, the creepy expansion just to, to ratchet them up a couple of notches. So now what about you? Well, yeah, the city of Lankmar, um, of course, it, it's liver, right? Uh, and in this one, he writes, each block is a surreal cenotaph that would bury Dolly. Uh, uh, 
yeah, familiar with quite a few solid Rodelli pieces. Um, yeah, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> Especially for San Francisco. That, that I could see the uh, the corollary there especially with the coastline all along the uh the western edge and yeah maybe Lankmar really is built on you know the bones of a really old you know break era san francisco um tower of the black pearl mark you mentioned earlier like book of names and like the next one written would be the one to be snuffed out. And so you have the book of candle or the book of names and the correlating candles. And that, that scene really kind of struck a nerve there. Um, I feel like I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to our known, uh, Lovecraftian works in, in the quote unquote, um, stable, uh, We've got, of course, Daniel Bishop's, uh, shoot, um, Creep's Creep, no, no, Arkham, uh, uh, the R Witch Grinder. The R Witch Grinder, that's right, yes, yes. I, I almost forgot it. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. Um, and from the Crawl Fulu zine, issue one, a horrible day at the Dunwich Fair. And <laughs> it is, yeah, it, it would it would fit thematically, but it takes place in a very rural setting, so that that's not really going to work. Um, the last thing I wanted to throw out a nod to that exists already. Um, if anybody is on Michael Curtis's Patreon page before he shuts it down, or I'm not sure if he has already, uh, back in 2020 he started a little thing on Zoom for everyone. We had three factions based on alignments, and it was called War Crawl. Rub it in, why don't you, Ken? Rub it in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Team Law may have won. One of the items that stuck with me so much afterwards was this armor that seemed to be sheets of music. But we weren't sure if it was just lyrics or were there really music stabs in there. Turned out it didn't matter. <laughs> but it is an item that he has written up and is available to the Patreon supporters called Literate Armor. And it is one of my favorite things ever. Ooh, that sounds cool. Awesome. What about you, Mark? I thought a lot about Shutter Mountains when I was reading this, um, and you know, another Michael Curtis creation, because there are so many ghost stories in the setting, especially some of the um, the precursor adventures to the Chain Coffin. Um, very much of a horror slash creepy feeling and vibe, and so that's a setting I think you could easily, you know, sort of take elements from um, from Liber's book and. You know, insert them here. That you know, the creepy uh, pulp creature. You know, that's uh, that's haunting the, the local Shutter Mountain area. I thought also Bride of the Black Mance more because of the, you know, the the horror element that's part of um, that yeah. being locked in the the house and having to solve it within a certain amount of time and the you know the pulse pounding that happens at the end. Um, and, and the factor of the 
and in, possibly inherited uh, lineage. Mm-hmm. The uh, one of the references that he talked about in the book is uh, Piazzi Smith, who is very much like a he's a royal astronomer, I think, and he was also really into pyramids and <laughs> especially the Great Pyramid. And historically, you know, he had went on this expedition that was financed, you know, not by you know the Royal Society, but by you know a, a private financier. And he the purpose of it was to measure the Great Pyramid in exacting detail. And have you know even the internal tunnel networks and things like that, and I just like that idea of like overlaying that onto some ziggurat-based adventure where you know it's been built to these precise elements and it creates its own sort of you know occult um, you know power to it, but also the idea that you know within the ziggurat there is a you know dungeon funereal cenotaph if you want. So um, the other things that not really directly DCC related, but couple of things I wanted to call out was um, I saw like, you know, in my reading, there was this RPG that was referenced called Cult RPG, which apparently is originally published in a, in Sweden uh, or it's a Swedish RPG that has an English version now, but it's very much of this idea of, you know, cities having two realities to them. Right. And, and, and maybe we want to go and, and investigate that, um, that role-playing system. The other thing I thought it was, and I've only played this a few times, but is Mage the Ascension, this idea that, you know, your characters have this sort of ability to alter the world in, uh, and, in, and the people around the, them are called, um, sleepers or the, the sleeping or something like that. But that, that sort of idea of, you know, um, pyramidalism and, you know, the cities and, and being able to like sort of affect the real world and it's overlaid with the real world that was a fun part of that um, role-playing system that um, I think you could do something similar in a DCC setting um, you know how is it that you know these individuals like they have hereditary or they just have you know maybe the world is changing around them and they're being haunted but you know that idea of parametalism and how it changes the urban landscape is a fun one so that that's really cool. I it hadn't stopped to think about it because it's a very world of darkness thing, right? I mean, in like Werewolf mm-hmm. the Apocalypse, there's the Umbra and mm-hmm. and electricity is is the spirits and things like that. So yeah, no, I, I totally see that. That's uh, that's really cool. I was gonna say we could just chalk it up to the, the entire world of darkness there. <laughs> that is that is really, really cool. Thank you for thinking outside the box. I like that. All right, so we're gonna move from the order of the onyx. Dusk, and this brings us to our featured DCC tie-in for the show, which is the Veiled Vaults of the Onyx Queen by Marzio Omashkere. No, no, help! I I hate butchering his last name. He's such a good guy. I hate. But I, I'm sorry. So Marzio, Marzio wrote this one. <laughs> The last name looks like Muscadere, but I know that's not how it's pronounced. Um, Okay, enough about that. Bob, tell us about this. (laughs) The Queen's Onyx Jubilee is set to begin, marking the 95th year of the merciful monarch's glorious reign. While the entire realm celebrates the good fortune of their long-lived sovereign, a group of common villagers fights to stay alive. For them, the festivities have become a nightmare as the sounds of revelry are replaced by screams of terror, their own. 
imprisoned by opulence, marked for death, hunted by creatures both, both grotesque and foul. This ragtag group of unsuspecting villagers must band together to brave the vile mysteries that haunt this place and stand defiant in the face of death itself. If they hope to escape the veiled vaults of the Onyx Queen and save their very souls. So zero level adventure starts in media res with the characters awakening deep within an opulent palace where they are set to become unwitting sacrifices to the corpse god Mordigian. There they must piece together their clues as to their whereabouts, contend with the ghoulish death cult, stop a vile sacrament, close a gate to the underworld, and ultimately confront the corpse god himself if they want to escape the charnel palace and save their very souls. The funnel? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Ooh, I, I, I know a module we need to feature somewhere else, too. Okay. Oh, man. And it, it's a great adventure. It's, it's worth it just for the, uh, the sacristy search table. It, it really is. It, it's, it's really fun. Uh, I haven't had a chance to play this one, but reading it, it's... It, Marzio, I, I I love his work, but this was something that um, I hadn't read before, and um, really enjoyed just the the breadth of all the the encounter space that is that you have with this adventure. So as a judge, you have this sort of tour of a mausoleum, you know, that has various mini encounters in it, and it's, yeah, it's, and it could you can see how easily a you know there may be parties that are you know game, players that miss that entirely they just go directly to you know uh the end thing but you know with this sort of like uh, you know meandering quality to it it it, it was really nice I, I i really liked it well there's just i mean so so the tables in the adventure make it make it a lot of fun but tying it tying it to to this story or our lady of darkness the the phantom voices that call out and then sort of fade away um and uh, Thibaut de Castries uh, as the philosopher king, right? I mean, he is he is the philosopher king of this story. Yeah. There's there's no doubt. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 then you know when you get to that portion of the adventure, there's the wonderful table for the philosopher king's alphabet. <laughs> All sorts of really, I mean, there's there's so many really neat little pieces that are just just crammed to overflowing with, with really cool stuff uh, between yeah. just the, the text and the monsters. And- he's got like some neat results for like reinventing your zero level, right? There are some things you can do in the adventure to not only, you know, re-roll your starting luck, um, but you can re-roll your occupation and you can re-roll, you can re-roll your stats to a certain extent because you, you know, the, he has, he has that for, for a few places and um, it's really concise and, and just kind of a fun way for getting out of like yeah. the, the normal funnel lane. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is Marzio Mushedra. Sorry. Sorry. Um, and I have to say Marzio's writing style really lends itself to this. Um, I've gotten to work on a few of his things, uh, and Liber and Clark Ashton Smith are obviously some of his favorites and Lovecraft as well, but you can see the, the Smith references throughout here. Uh, 
as Bob mentioned, yeah, De, De Castro is, is <laughs> plain as day. Um, so, I, yeah, I would actually recommend both this module and this story for anyone who's a fan of Clark Ashton Smith who might not have thought to give this one a look. It's also an excuse for Jen to buy, you know, purple fountain pen ink. I mean, that that did oh. come to mind, but I'm way ahead of you on that. <laughs> Oh, I mean, of, of all of the things to unpack, of course, some of my pens. Yes. <laughs> but this, but the, the other thing I think that really sticks out to me in this adventure is it's a funnel, but it's a funnel where those zero levels get to face off against a true big bad, right? Yep. I mean, they're facing off against the charnel god, or at least they have Tarov. I mean, they're, so there's real, there's big stakes for a zero level character. It's not just whoops, a goblin threw a spear, hit me in the chest, I'm dead. There's, well, I mean, there's right. there's the equivalent of that as well. I mean, it is a funnel, but <laughs> but there's there's big stakes. It's not just, well, these are zero level, they've only got a handful of hit points, so you can't throw anything serious at them. Marzio yeah. finds a way to do that and really make it work. Do not um, let it be said that all zero level funnels are boring or that any. Yeah. I've never found anything boring. boring. Yeah. No, no, there's, there's a lot of people who don't yet play DCC and the funnel is one of the things they have a problem with. So the, this throws so much at them that can be surmounted. If your dice agree with you or. (laughs) Well, and I I guess, I mean, we could, we could, I think theoretically, I mean, DCC has been around for 10 years now. I mean, we, I think we could safely say that your DCC 100 starts kind of the current modern DCC era. So this would be the first funnel of the modern DCC era. And it is, I think in many ways, almost as iconic as, as sailors, just because there's so many really cool twists and turns to it. It is a brilliantly written adventure and I think that people that play it are are going to talk about it a lot. Yeah, I, I think it's rare that funnels are are these things that are, like you said, a, outside the DC community, maybe like a little bit looked on like, oh, I, I don't know, that sounds kind of weird. But this is like one of those adventures that really proves how how creative you can get with this idea of zero-level characters. And, you know, this is it's also a great, hook for further adventures right this is something that at the end of the tale there is a hint of well that may not be everything that's down there and this sort of you know the the all the players are invested in you know is there yet more things to root out or discover or more tombs that might you know <laughs> in fact, you know view them with some treasure or some cha- or some magic item because there's also a lot of that scattered around too which is unusual for kind of like that that zero level um as well so i think it ends perfectly with with the 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 adventure equivalent of and that story will also be told (laughs) right i mean yeah yeah definitely if you're a a dcc fan and you you know have these kind of like i always go back to sailors and just run that for new groups things like that this is an excellent adventure to to branch out of that and just use this it i I, i'm gonna try it out um just because it's it's one of the things that if uh, only there was a place like next week that a lot of people could get it (laughs) (laughs) well i I think that 
you know, if you're if you're new to DCC, this is a great funnel to run. If you've been running DCC forever, well, then your group has been through sailors at least once. And if you're starting a new campaign, you need a new funnel anyway. Uh, I think this is it. This is it is it is absolutely brilliant. All right, Bob. So uh, do we have a couple other things we need to talk about? Real well, quick? Um, we have relaunched the Sanctum Scorm Companion as the Sanctum Scorm Quarterly. Um, as always, it's available for free on Drive Through RPG, and and we are always looking for you know more content and more contributors. So if you're interested in joining the team for the long haul, or just having you know something for a single issue, you can drop us a line at the hub at sanctum.media. You know, we'd love to see what sort of stuff you're coming up with. Our first issue is available, although our second issue has been delayed due to the relocation of the uh, the Sanctum Library that has caused Sorry. a few delays. Um, in the meantime, you can also be sure to look for the first hard copy release by Ugandan author Ashraf Braden, debuting at Gen Con. It's going to be available at the Goodman Games booth, and I'll likely have copies with me in the evenings. It is a compilation of the releases with expanded material and a, uh, an intro by Ashraf, and it will only be available at Gen Con. So look for that. And then his next release, because again, the relocation of the it's Sanctum coming. Library through a few things. The is coming. It, it comes back to the Bachwezi and, and the Behogo is coming. Well, yes, the Behogo is coming. That ties back to the Bachwezi. It's, and, and I've read it. It's great. Pronunciation so, guides, Bachwezi. Yeah, if you're enjoying the show, please comment on the podcast or help us by posting a review on iTunes and or, or YouTube, right? Uh, or drive through RPG if you're one of our zine fans. The ratings for reviews really do help. I mean, it sounds funny because everybody is always is always saying, you know, click subscribe and hit the bell. But those things really do make a difference. It helps new people find the podcast. It helps people find our community. So, so there's that. And then next month, which is well, very a lot sooner than I like to think about, we have a special pre-recorded episode, which is going straight to podcasts. So uh, the Sanctum Squirm will not be on Twitch next month, but we will be discussing Tanith Lee's Night's Dark Master with super special guest James V. West. So that is that's kind of kind of our news, Jen. All right. And with that, don't forget to hunt each of us down individually at Gen Con in Indianapolis. Uh, we will be there for, I don't know, at least a week. Uh, <laughs> the scheduling is kind of, uh, this week we're, we're there. This other week we're, we might, st- I, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> uh, so I, I think officially we start on August 3rd is when it opens to the public. So come say hi to us. Um, get a bookmark from us if we happen to have any on us. If not, um, we'll give you a handwritten rain check on a post-it note. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're official and stuff, right? That's um, right. So I'm... Uh, honored to be here with my two co-hosts and this has been a, a wonderful episode a wonderful book to read and a great module to tie it all together so i think that'll probably take us out mark any last thoughts i 
I really enjoyed the selection. I think, you know, Jen, if we, if like you said, we had read this six months ago, we would have had a, a tour that we would immediately booked <laughs> self-guided tour for, uh, for that man's visit, <laughs> um, San Francisco. Um, really enjoyed it. And yeah, I had so much fun talking with, talking with you guys about it. Um, and also looking forward to seeing folks next week. Um, so if you happen to be in the Indianapolis area for Gen Con, um, looking forward to saying hi and, um, just having a lot of fun with games. And uh, I, yeah, I, I will, I will second and third. I'm looking forward to seeing people you know, next week at Gen Con. That's, that's the highlight of the convention for me, really, or of any convention is seeing members of the community. So, uh, one quick thing if you are going to Gen Con, please hydrate now for next week and take care of yourselves, stay healthy. Gen Con can be pretty grueling, so uh, go into it healthy to begin with. Yeah. There, there you have it. And, uh, yeah. And, yes, even you agree, babe. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, thanks for listening. and Be inspired. Good night. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media.